From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It is Wednesday, April 1st, and you are listening to uh, a special bonus edition of the HPS Macrocast. Uh, Tony Prado coming to you from the hills of western Pennsylvania. Uh, John Fagan and um, Brendan Walsh. John, Brendan, where are you guys right now? Washington, D.C. Yep. Both in Washington still. Yes, indeed. Holding down the fort. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you guys are down there holding it down. Yeah. But the yeah. truth is... It's a nice place to ride this out. <laughs> good. As long as, yeah, well, the liquor stores are still open there. They're not here. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> oh, my so God. Yeah, it's a little bit rougher in Pennsylvania right now. <laughs> uh, but look, you know, uh, that was, uh, I think, you know, I mean, we made it to April 1st. We should be congratulating everyone that we actually made it to April. That um, was a hellfire of a month of March, um, probably the worst March on record. Uh, certainly was for equity markets. It certainly was for lots of businesses. Um, you know, you look a month ago at passengers flying on airplanes uh, relative today, and we're, they're flying one ninth of the uh, load that they were uh, a month ago and going down from there. Uh, it was, you know, I mean, pr- one of the most brutal months of March ever. Uh, but here we are in April, and, and the things that are different between uh, then and now is um, we had the Fed take lots of action. People forget it was, it was just, it was on March 3rd. So not even a month ago, March 3rd, that, um, which was Super Tuesday, that uh, Jay Powell, Fed chairman, surprised the world by uh, announcing a, a 50 basis point cut uh, in the policy rate. That was, you know, not a month ago, and uh, which is just amazing. I guess it was four weeks ago. Uh, yeah. You know, amazing that, that, um, uh, that it was that recent and all of the actions that the Fed has taken since then. We have also seen uh, fiscal action uh, by Congress and uh, the Fed. Again, in that time period, they've passed not one but two stimulus bills, one relatively minor but good policy in it of about $8.5 billion, and then a gargantuan you know, $2.2-plus billion uh, package. Um, and then we have seen the first evidence of um, our $2.2 trillion um, package. And then we have seen the first evidence of, uh, you know, the, the hit to employment uh, just in the past couple of weeks. We've got some clues on that. We're going to talk about all three of those this morning. First, I'm going to talk about the Fed. And, and very specifically, you know, we, we, spent, we have spent some time on the liquidity provisioning work that they've done. The, um, the most, uh, but, you know, what they did uh, yesterday, which doesn't get a lot of attention, it's not very well understood here, is uh, they essentially, not essentially, it is in fact, it's a repo uh, facility for uh, central banks around the world. It's open to almost every, you know, almost any uh, central bank of any uh, significance. They have previously uh, done currency swap lines. So we want to talk a little bit about that. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the stimulus bills and uh, what we see from them and how they're working. And, uh, you know, we've got some details from Treasury and SBA Mm-hmm. on uh, how people can apply for those uh, programs and what we think they're going to do. And then we're going to look ahead to, uh, to the, the two monster job reports. Um, uh, this week we have, uh, you know, payrolls uh, reporting on Thursday and, uh, or, I'm sorry, un- uh, unemployment insurance weekly claims on Thursday. 
and then uh, and then payrolls, uh, non-farm payrolls on Friday. So um, yeah, Tony, I think that so John, talking about yeah, the ahead, Fed Brandon. is really talking about the Fed is what the Fed is doing is really important because in in the popular narrative, the the Fed actions are getting a little bit lumped in with the fiscal narrative, and I think it's important to explain to people that the two are kind of totally different. Yeah, and we know that like the, a lot of the liquidity uh, work, right? The, the the stuff that they did from um, you know that that go back to the global financial crisis, all of the liquidity provision and trying to uh, you know create markets and 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 uh, and support markets for assets uh, and 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 help make sure that uh, that the, the, all parts of the financial sector, whether whether it's money markets, you know, cash market, overnight cash markets. Um, you know, uh, that uh, the, you know, the corporate paper facility, you know, some of these are new, but it's basically to keep all of the plumbing moving. Um, and so you don't get, you know, a, a, a seizing up of the financial uh, system. We, we've paid some attention to that um, uh, here. They're also doing QE, of course, and they've, you know, gone to the you know, zero bound on, on the policy rate. The thing that hasn't got any attention, which I think is, is interesting, and not just for some, you know, some former Treasury nerds, but is the um, the uh, the uh, uh, you know swap lines that they opened up with uh, central banks um, around the world, major uh, you know major some major central banks, and then yesterday this uh, this repo facility. John, John, why don't you walk us through? Both of the both of what they did with both the swap lines and uh, and the repo facility and and explain why is this why is the Fed doing this so to me I've, I've said look the Fed is in time especially in times of stress the Fed is the central bank to the world and that's kind of what we're seeing here isn't it that's absolutely right Tony <clears throat> thank you the uh, just to, as as you say to step back I mean the Fed has been running plays like Tom Brady in the two minute offense. I mean, they've just been, you know, it's rate cuts, it's QE, it's more QE. The deep ball down the middle was the unlimited QE uh, for purchases of treasury and mortgage backed securities. But they've just been going through the playbook, much of which was written, as you know, in 2000. Does Brady still have a deep ball? <clears throat> <laughs> maybe, maybe better than Tampa deep Bay. Ball from Brady in a while. Have I really? Uh, <laughs> we'll he see. played for Tampa Bay right, now, so we can, uh, we can criticize yeah, him. I don't, I don't know about the deep ball, though. <laughs> But uh, anyway, the Fed has really, as you say, the dollar uh, dollar liquidity and running plays to uh, running running the, the the plays to basically dampen the strains on dollar liquidity overseas. That wasn't the very top of the, it. wasn't their first kind of priority. It wasn't the top of the playbook. It was a little a few pages back, uh, but the Fed was obviously got around to it as they saw overseas demand for dollars, you know, particularly when you're looking at the, the most common ones you look at are Euro and Yen. That was showing extreme, uh, extreme premium for getting access to dollars, which suggested, you know, which, which obviously indicated a, uh, just a drying up of dollar availability uh, overseas. We had a lot of uh, contacts with, with uh, folks on the street who were complaining about this. They, it's called the basis uh, basically, uh, is 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 what they call it. It's the uh, it's above the the sort of interest differential uh, that you pay to get access to dollars. And uh, our, some of our contacts basically characterized those markets as broken for a while mm. in in the middle of March. And access to dollars was extremely uh, extremely tight 
the uh, the Fed swap lines, uh, those uh, those came into play in 2008, 2009. Those are with a limited number of central banks uh, and uh, foreign central banks to swap dollars for uh, for foreign currencies. And so the the kind of currencies that you want, you know, without taking too much too much risk in in the trade, you're going to be swapping with tend to be you know very well more developed uh, sort of peer currencies and so forth. Uh, they expanded. Yeah, so yeah, the so the, just uh, just a uh, we have standing swap lines with um, with the number of central banks. So it's a Bank of England, Canada, European Central Bank, Bank of Japan, and then the Swiss National Bank. That's our that's our those are our standing uh, swap lines that the Fed has with with other major central banks. Right, and they expanded those to uh, I think the the it was a total of fourteen, I guess uh, fourteen now. Fourteen central banks. Yeah including uh, they opened it up uh, Australia, uh, Denmark, uh, and Brazil, uh, Brazil other like they, they obviously widened, uh, widened the scope as, uh, as dollar liquidity got, uh, got, uh, you know, really got stressed uh, overseas. Uh, and this was beginning to show some, this was beginning to show some good effect. Uh, certainly as, uh, you know, we saw the, um, we saw dollar availability look, uh, look, look better, particularly in the euro and yen, which you can see pretty easily. Uh, and then we saw, the, we saw the dollars spike, which occurred uh, at the height of market tensions in the middle of March, and come back off. The dollar, dollar demand overseas doesn't always directly translate into you know, strength of the dollar, uh, but it typically well does. Yeah, what, why? What is? Can you, can you? What is the? I don't think it's. I think it's hard for people to understand. Like, what? Why is there this global demand for you know for dollars, and why does it? Why is it peak right now? Like, what is? I mean, we we know that the sort of old, which we've talked about before, is there's there's the there's the regular just a flight to safety, right? People are looking for a liquid market that you can get in and out of and park dollars you know, park your, if you have dollars, right, you go buy treasuries. So that's why you need your dollars, right? So you can go buy treasuries and then sit and wait until the storm passes, right? right. And then you can go sell those treasuries because it's a big, when we say it is a big, rich, liquid market, the big is big, it's available to everyone. It's rich. It's a lot of, you know, players with a lot of money involved. Liquid means that you can get in and out of it very quickly. The, the chances of you not being able to sell a treasury 10-year note normally is really slim. It's impossible, right? I mean, there's always a buyer on the other side of that right. Uh, trade, right? So that's the liquid part. So you've got dollars, and it's the next best thing to keeping cash, which is the ultimate liquidity, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, this, this is why. a great that's question. Why but why is, it, why is it more indifferent now? Yeah. Because the, the answer is interesting why people need it, but also the answer explains too why it's just very difficult in in this in this world that we live in for the dollar to 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 weaken too much. Yeah, so I mean part ahead, of it. There. Yeah, I mean it basically, as as you say, Tony, there's the there's the rush to safety uh, the, as the global reserve currency and uh, and treasuries are are the that you know the safe haven asset of choice uh, for investors. Uh, and that's a that's a, a that's a privilege uh, <laughs> that uh, that the United States enjoys, uh, but it also creates its own problems because dollar strength can you know basically be a self fulfilling 
uh, and, and self-reinforcing and pro-cyclical to the downside kind of problem. Why is that? Right. If you are overseas, you know, so much of the, you know, so much of the business that you do, so much of the, whether it's financing trade or taking on debt or so on and so forth, you're doing it in dollars. And if you're in a, uh, if you're, if your revenues and your, and your streams of income are in another currency and the dollar is, is gaining strength against that currency, this is a classic squeeze uh, that we see typically happen in emerging markets, but it can happen in other countries as well, <clears throat> where all of a sudden your dollar-based liabilities are going up in value against your you know, falling value of your income and revenue streams, which makes you scramble to get into dollars to try to get ahead of that, uh, to mm-hmm. try to get ahead of that squeeze. And that's sort of, you know, part of the, that's part of the real economy aspect of, uh, of a scramble, a forced scramble into dollars. And that's in the, in the real economy side. Um, you know, obviously there's a, uh, you know, there's a, uh, in, in the, in the trading world and financial world as well, you've got investors and companies with investments that are in dollars those are going to be, you know, potentially on the hook to post more collateral. Uh, yeah. You've got to be getting, because the value of those are going down. Uh, so you're going to be trying to get out of trades. You've got to be getting, you know, it's a lot of those, you know, a lot of those investments are denominated in dollars. You've got to be, you've got to have access to dollars. You're going through your local banks. You're calling up, you're trying to get out of your, you know, your emerging, you're trying to get out of your position in emerging market bonds somewhere. Yeah. That's going to be going back into dollars. It's a very, it's it's both real economy and and financial sector demand that alongside that just organic safe haven demand that really pushes people into the dollar to try to get their hands on it for a variety of different yeah uh, and that, a variety of different reasons and it, and, and, and the, when the dollar re- increases in value it it increases the urgency of doing so. Yeah, yeah, and so that's a really important point where a, a lot of financial markets go up and down because investors are making decisions. The, the currency markets, especially the dollar, is really much more driven by Main Street. It, it's companies mm-hmm. that have to make decisions. And then yeah. Wall Street is a little more on the, on the outside of it that, that in terms of moving it. And dollars become, in that, in that situation, um, you know, they're, the, they're the, uh, the lubricant between, you know, non-dollar economies too, right? I mean, if you're, it's easier for uh, Brazil and uh, Australia to, to uh, you know, to trade in um, or settle, settle accounts in dollars than it is in each other's currency because, you know, you have, you have currency risk and, uh, uh, and the markets are thinner for their own currencies than they are for than they are for dollars. Yeah. So like that, there are lots, lots of reasons why, why actually, dollars are necessary. And an interesting data point is, so uh, Visa is the largest trader of currency in the world on a daily basis because yeah. uh, so much of their income comes from cross-border people, you know, using your, yeah. your Visa card. So every day it's just, a, it's a company and, and they have to exchange, uh, you know, Aussie dollars for US dollars and things like that. Yeah, yeah, such and, a great point. And that's why, and, and that's why this week's uh, important repo operations that the Fed opened up to foreign central banks is so important, Tony. And you mentioned that distinction between the swap lines. The swap lines are, you know, they have standing swap lines with some central banks. They opened it up to some more, but it's really a very limited number. The repo operations are far more, they're far more expansive. The ability, yeah. uh, basically, if you are holding, if you're a foreign central bank holding treasuries, and you have an account with the New York Fed, and 
pretty much all of them do. That's yeah, just to be then, that's about 170, roughly 170 countries around the world uh, have an account with the New York Fed. Right, and I saw f- a number of five trillion in <laughs> of you yeah. know of sort of treasury yeah. treasury holdings there. That's 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 big, and the the ability for those uh, those countries to post that treasury as collateral and receive cat basically receive dollar liquidity from that. That is an operation that, you know, for the fed kills two birds with one stone, the foreign central banks were, were forced sellers of treasuries because their real economies and their banks were demanding dollars, their access, their dollar liquidity is tied up in treasuries. They were forced to sell those treasuries to get mm-hmm. access to dollars uh, after a certain point. And that was, uh, you know, potentially troublesome for the treasury market. Uh, you never want to see forced selling in your market and dislocations did occur um, in, uh, in some of the price action in treasury markets in mid-month, which is very rare. And, uh, and so the Fed, has, the Fed has kind of really gotten, uh, gotten, gotten to both sides of the issue there by going through this. It's really widened the access to dollar liquidity while calming down uh, potentially the forced selling uh, of, of treasuries. Uh, and so, uh, so the, just a, like the, the brief, that's just a, maybe we should have even started with like just an explanation of what, you know, what the two are, but they're, they're, they're not, they're not complicated, right? A, a swap um, is a, uh, it's basically the, you know, the, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England, you know, basically credit a big number in their own accounts on today's exchange rate. Right. right. You know, like you, you say you've got, you know, I don't know what the exchange rate is uh, with the pound today, but 117 uh, billion pounds in your account and 100 uh, billion dollars in our account. And there's your swap. Um, and um, and you just credit it. You just tick those numbers uh, at that at the, at the uh, this exchange rate with a um, with a, the, the swap to. Um, uh, to, to the exchange goes back at some point in the future at a steady price. So there is a, the, 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 the foreign exchange risk is about zero. Um, um, and then, and then a, uh, and then this, you know, it's, it's actually not a whole lot more complicated than that. And then, the, and then the repo uh, facility is, it's like the repo market here is uh, uh, the, the foreign central bank, uh, the national bank of Italy, um, uh, delivers, you know, treasury uh, lends treasuries to uh, the Fed. Uh, the Fed gives uh, uh, the uh, uh, National Bank of uh, Italy uh, dollars uh, with the agreement that um, they will uh, reverse that trade in. It might be tomorrow, it might be next week, or it might be three months from now. The relatively short-term uh, uh, repossession loans uh, to get them through periods of of, uh, uh, you know, through their liquidity needs. That's it, right? That's exactly, yep. And, and that, that repo window is typically just available for, you know, in the, in the U.S. sort of domestic market. And you have, it's cash management for companies and banks. And, uh, and, and the general collateral repo markets that we've seen have calmed down a lot as the Fed has poured a ton of additional, basically almost unlimited liquidity into those. And so that's, that has that's also been calmed down. I think just just guess, the last okay, just the last note job. that um, even as dollar liquidity uh, gauges show a lot less stress overseas, that doesn't mean that the dollar is weakening. Um, you know, availability for dollars is we're talking about, and this is the distinction that we're making 
on, on a, on a markets basis in a lot of other places, it's functionality and, and then directionality. And you can have a functioning dollar market, which is the number one priority. The fed wants to be, if, if people need dollars, they want to be able to get them. But that doesn't mean that the dollar is, you know, that, that the supply and demand for the dollar isn't pushing the dollar higher against other currencies. Um, it's a, and, and we're beginning to see the dollar turn higher again. And, and that's a, you know, that's something that policymakers will have to be watching very closely. Well, uh, that was, uh, I guess we could say it looks like they're, you know, it looks like they're, you know, they're doing the best to smooth this. It looks like it's working as much as it can and keep an eye on it and, uh, see what, what more they need, uh, they need to be done. But, um, the other piece of it, uh, so that's monetary policy. Let's let's take a break and come back and talk about uh, what fiscal policy is doing because that's it's uh, pretty big right now. We have a little bit more details on uh, on some of the uh, lending programs that are going to get started here uh, pretty soon. So why don't we take a break now? Uh, you're listening to the HPS Macrocast. On the first Friday of every month, HBS analyzes the latest jobs and labor market data in a digestible format. Sign up for our reports at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com or on Twitter at HPS Insight. All right, we're back on the Macrocast, uh, special bonus edition on Wednesday, April 1st. And this is a, um, you know, no, no April Fool's jokes at all. So <laughs> no, no, it's not a time for, for April Fool's jokes. No one, no one can be fooled about anything right now. Uh, we, we did, uh, you know, last week we saw the passage of uh, this, you know, enormous $2.2 trillion uh, fiscal package, which we've been calling for for a number of weeks. Uh, I, we should give credit that it actually, it actually is coming, you know, quickly, very, very quickly for D.C. standards. Whether it's quick enough or big enough, uh, we'll, you know, we'll find out. But we, we've started to see some of the details on some of the lending programs you know, grants for airlines uh, are are moving. The the potential loans for airlines they need to uh, start. They need to make their applications by Friday. Uh, so that's that's very quick, and we'll see which ones do um, uh, ask for lending and which ones don't. Um, the the really big program, I think, that most people are rightly focused on, and it is it is um, really innovative. It's a roughly three hundred and fifty billion dollar program for um, for small and medium sized businesses. Um, Treasury released you know some of their details on this. Our friends at the um, Economic Innovation Group, EIG, uh, put out a uh, you know a good primer on it. If you want to go to eig.org uh, and check out their uh, uh, this is called the Paycheck uh, Paycheck Protection Program. This is an mm-hmm. effort which I think when I say innovative and that has never been done before. The idea here is lend money to small, medium-sized enterprises on really concessional terms. Uh, in this plan, the, the, the interest rate is, is half a percentage point, really concessional terms with the, the, the goal uh, of uh, retaining workers at these, uh, uh, at these businesses because um, we see this as a temporary downturn. Brendan, you you actually went you actually went and looked at some. This is administered through the uh, through the Small Business Administration, the uh, loan application process. What what did, what did you see? Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting. So there, there's two different loans. There's the disaster relief loan that has existed for forever, where you know if you get hit by a hurricane, you apply. 
that is a, a relatively complicated loan. It, you know, it, it would probably take you, if you had everything and, and, the, and the website was working up, uh, you know, maybe an hour to fill out and you have to have your tax uh, uh, re, um, filing from the previous year. And it's kind of a normal loan application. But what they've done is you, if you are a big business and you actually need a, a halfway decent sized loan, you're, you apply for that. But, um, and then they'll process it. But they've also streamlined that process for, to get money out the door immediately. So this process, they're basically giving you a $10,000 advance on that future loan um, that um, will, will so come- So just by applying, you apply, yeah. they send you a check for $10,000. Yeah, so, and that one takes about five minutes to do. And basically all you need is your, your taxpayer ID and basically you put in your name and your, your, um, your bank account information. And, and they're, they're trying to get that $10,000 out the door immediately. And, uh, and that, that $10,000 is intended to be forgiven. If you, if you get a larger loan, um, they're talking about maybe 90% kind of forgiveness. So, so that's one loan. And then, as you said, there's the payroll uh, program. And that's entirely new with this CARES Act. And that is intended to, they're basically going to give you money so that you can then pass it on to, to keep your people employed. But also what I found in, in terms of talking to people is, and I think this is a good thing. So a, a lot of people that work in the service industry, especially if you, if you make tips, it, it's better to just go on unemployment rather than for the employer to do the payroll. And, and that's, that's the more efficient way. So one way or the other, I do think we're, we're going to get money into to people's hands. Uh, but the treasury is a bit overwhelmed, especially with these small business loans. And the only way to do it, and, and the bill intended it for this to happen, is, is you go through your bank. So you already have your bank account and maybe a loan with, you know, Bank of America or whatever. They're mm. going to process it. They're going to decide, okay, you know, you have $30 million in revenue and 500 employees. You need X amount. Bank of America will make you the loan and treasury will, will reimburse, uh, will reverse the banks. And I think that that can actually be a fairly efficient way and we can get out the money, you know, in a in weeks, not months and years. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, it's funny, you mentioned on the ease of, uh, of applying, I, I saw some, you know, on Twitter questions about the, um, the shortness of the application, the brevity of the application. And people say, well, it's easier to apply for this, you know, these billions of dollars than it is to apply for whatever it is, you know, uh, a credit card application or a home loan. And, and, uh, and there was a people were critical of it to be honest, it's the exact opposite. I mean, what you want here, the most valuable thing today is the speed of getting this money out. The you're going, the, if you are applying for this money, you're going to make attestations that you're going to keep your employees, that you're not seeking any other federal money anywhere else. You're just going to attest to this. And it will be on the back end for, you know, your bank to, um, to uh, determine whether you have, in fact, done that. Uh, right. Because, because and the and part of the application, for... your business had to be on the books before January right. 1st, 2020. So, you know, maybe you can do some fraud and get the loan. But when we do the accounting in years, it, it, it's just going to be impossible to not get caught. Because yeah. you, have you have to have, to have a tax filer ID. Payments. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then the question is, so let's say this, this money does get out. It's April 1st. Um, 
you know, one of the uh, things about April 1st is people have their rent due. They have mm-hmm. their um, mortgage payments due. Um, you know, payroll is, you know, uh, maybe it's Friday for, uh, you know, for a lot of people making, uh, making payroll. A lot of this money is going to get out uh, fairly quickly. Is it going to be big enough and is it going to be fast enough to have the, uh, the impact that we, that we hope? And I think what we're seeing from uh, some of the private sector estimates out there is that there's nothing, there's nothing uh, preventing a pretty enormous uh, uh, hit to GDP uh, uh, in this quarter, is there? Yeah, it, it, this quarter is going to be terrible. And I think in terms of estimating how, whether it's enough, it's entirely dependent on how long we have to be shut down. If, if we have to be shut down for a month, it's probably enough. If it has to be two to three months, then we might have to uh, do phase four, which uh, apparently the House is already working on. Yeah, from a market's perspective, it's really hard to, this isn't the typical kind of uh, formulation that market participants uh, are, are used to following. The Fed really has been a, the star of the stimulus show in the, post, in the global financial crisis and the post-crisis era. And so when the Fed you know, would pull the QE lever or do something, you could see the effect you know, so quickly. It was executed fast and it hit the markets in a, in a big, you know, straight to the, <laughs> straight to the bloodstream kind of rush. And, uh, and you could, you know, when you markets or market participants are used to that instant gratification aspect of Jay Powell coming out and saying, okay, we're going to do X. And then the market turns around on a dime and starts yeah. heading northward. When you have these slower moving programs like this, and you have a, a lot of, as, as, as you both said, un- tons of uncertainty about just how deep the impact is going to be. And even if, even if companies and small businesses and, and households are getting the money in the short term, because of the social distancing and all of the different restrictions that we're all still under, the fact that they're, you know, staving off insolvency isn't, uh, is, still isn't really going to be boosting economic activity in the way that, uh, you know, in the way that that kind, those kind of numbers uh, would, would suggest. Um, and it's basically keeping the economy on life support. And, and that's really, and it's pretty hard, it's going to be pretty hard for market participants to see that in a, in a real time, in a real time basis. And so we're going to be doing a lot of guesswork. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that we've seen this week, just over the last couple of days is this, you know, a, a increasing concern uh, among market participants or maybe an acceptance that even on the other side of the infection curve, the, the economic healing is going to be halting, slow, fitful, uneven. We can see that in Asia with, you know, there a lot of the countries in Asia by, by the metrics that they publish are past the worst of the outbreak, but still, uh, you know, a lot of measures uh, are staying in place and have to come back and you see secondary flare ups and so forth. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, markets are now beginning to yeah. uh, come to grips with. And I think that's a really important point where actually bending the curve by shutting down, while it's, it's difficult in our day to day life, the, the things you have to do is easy. Everyone stays home and we tap. Yeah. Reopening is the hard part. Yeah, and especially as, as uh, you know, John, you mentioned, um, which I don't, again, I don't know that it was, it's, it's a friend of mine for a lot of people here. It certainly wasn't by, you know, the president when he was, you know, predicting, you know, let's try to get back to work by Easter, uh, which is in two weeks, um, was not 
considering what we're seeing in both in China and Japan now, which is, you yeah. know, it's a double, a double dip or a double hit, uh, where yeah. it's, uh, uh, potentially coming back again. Uh, but which the press conference natural. last night was was one of the most somber ones I've heard uh, outside of war. You know, yeah. So I think the reality is hitting people. So. Yeah, we've been talking about the, um, you know, we've been talking about the uh, the economic hit. Uh, what with, with you know what they somewhat formally announced on uh, their uh, 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 where where the potential uh, fatalities estimates. Uh, which are pretty horrific uh, numbers, estimates of 100,000 uh, additional Americans dying this year because of uh, COVID-19. That is, those are horrifying uh, numbers and, um, uh, and, and hard to even, you know, wrap your arms around what that means for the, you know, that's, that's 240,000 additional, you know, funerals and broken families and um, uh, that, uh, that are going to happen over this period. So it is, it is a um, it is pretty you know damaging on uh, many on many levels, um, but hopefully that some of the economic actions uh, that uh, that we've seen can help mitigate at least the economic impact. Um, well, one of the uh, you know one of the measures of the economic impact uh, we're going to get well two of them we're going to get two econ- uh, uh, jobs reports this week. Why don't we take a break and come back and talk about uh, what we think this means. And whether the data mean anything at all um, uh, right now um, uh, as we look at uh, you know some of the data coming this week. You're listening to the HPS Macrocast. Every two weeks, HPS measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations for the economy. The HPS Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us through HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com. All right, we're back on the macrocast. Uh, hey, guys, uh, you know, quickly, we've got two more jobs reports. We saw with uh, we saw uh, unemployment insurance claims, the weekly claims data, uh, the initial filings last Thursday uh, were, you know, an enormous number, 3.2 million people filing. Uh, that was more than three times the, the largest weekly re- report ever. Estimates we're seeing this week, also huge. And then we have the, you know, the uh, non-farm payrolls on Friday. Brendan, what should we expect from these numbers and, and what do they mean? Yeah, I think the one to follow now is the claims because that's just with a one-week lag and those are actual checks. So that's the amount of people that are, are out of work. In down the road, the, the the jobs number is going to be important, but also a lot of those people aren't able to be in the office. Uh, but most importantly, in terms of the, the non-farm payroll, the when they ask an employer, they ask, was that person employed on the week that included the 12th of the month? So that week was like the 8th, 12th. So a lot of the shutdowns uh, nationally hadn't happened yet. So this this number that we get on Friday might look a lot less bad than the reality. So I think the, the focus for, for markets, but also policymakers uh, should be on, on the claims. And uh, I was reading yesterday, um, like um, California is already up to about 1.6 million uh, this week. So 
you're going to be talking about, you know, five to six million people each week that are unemployed. And it's, yeah, it's we, we should just, yeah. yeah, we just said just, just a little bit of the mechanics behind both. There are actually two numbers. So we say the, you know, the, we talk about the unemployment rate and we talk about job creation. The rate comes from the, uh, the uh, household that's survey. A, yeah. So that's actually a survey that they call you and I and say, are you yep. employed? The, the jobs number comes from the employers. The so in terms of the survey. thing to foc focus on in, on the Friday's employment, I think is more on the unemployment rate because that probably can quicker capture whether you're unemployed, uh, where the, the jobs number uh, is, is, a, is a point in time and also it, it'll get revised uh, over time. Yeah. I feel like the, you know, usually when we see, you know, some, you know, change in uh, in the employment, you know, monthly employment job creation numbers, the payrolls numbers. You know, we say, well, you know, don't trust that number this month. There's a lot of noise. In it. <laughs> you know? This one, we're saying, don't trust this number because there's not enough noise in it. Yes, exactly. Right? Like yeah. it's missing. It came, it's coming. The, the survey is coming before most of the noise <laughs> started happening, yeah. and so it's. So it's it, I mean, it's going to be. It's not going to be a good number. Uh, but it's not also, it's also, uh, we know anecdotally uh, just what we're seeing with our eyes uh, and what we're reading in the news yeah. that the actual unemployment numbers, job creation numbers are much worse than what we're going to get in this report. Yeah. And, and it, it's hard enough for what the BLS does to, to be able to do this on a monthly basis and get out the door. Uh, so this is one of the most timely the numbers we have. Um, you know, they, they get it out the door a couple of days after the, mm -hmm. the month ends. I can't imagine what you're talking about, you know, 5 million losses. And also a lot of these people have to do it from home. So, uh, yeah. you know, I think they're doing an amazing job, but the, the first cut at it is not going to be what the last one cut looks like. Well, we're, so we're like everyone else, we're guessing at it now. Uh, when we come back on, on Friday, we'll have the actual numbers and see what we can, what we can read from them. Um, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll take a look at that. I think we had ATP out today, also, which is again a nothing number that we can, nothing to, nothing to read. Those are private sector, uh, um, private sector employment again, missing most of the uh, exactly. most of the noise as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll be back on uh, Friday. Thanks for joining us for the uh, uh, for this uh, bonus edition of the Macrocast. Uh, John Pegg and Brendan Walsh. I'm Tony Prado. We'll be back with you on uh, on Friday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. Find more from Hamilton Place Strategies at hamiltonplacestrategies.com and follow Tony Fratto on Twitter at Tony Fratto. Learn more about John Fagan, Brendan Walsh, and the work they do at Markets Policy Partners by visiting marketspolicy.com.